Good morning, Grace. Most of us have heard of Beethoven. Many would say he's uh, one of the best composers ever, the greatest of all time. Uh, he lived in, if I remember right, late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, a few years back, there was a group of British tourists, and they were touring the house that Beethoven spent his final years. And as they were walking through, seeing each room, the guy got them to this particular room, and his voice dropped just a little, and quietly he said, here is the master's piano. And a young lady kind of worked away to the group, and before anything could be said, she sat down and began to play one of Beethoven's sonatas. And they all just stood there, and after she played a little bit, she paused and she looked at the guide, and she said, I bet a lot of people want to play this piano. And he looked at her and he said, Miss Paderowski was here about a month ago with his friends and they asked him to play and he said, no, I'm not worthy. We're in Matthew 18 today and if you have looked ahead or remember, there's a question there at the beginning, right? It says, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And when I was thinking about the title uh, for today, this is what I came up with. Who is the goat? Now, that didn't, at least when I was younger, that was, that was an animal. But now when you hear it, especially when you're talking about athletics, goat stands for greatest of all time. So now it's like a compliment if you're called a goat when you're doing something. Um, so Beethoven might have been the goat. Um, but here are the disciples and they are asking the question. So let's take a look. Matthew 18, uh, 1 through 9. At that time, Jesus, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we unpack this passage, we again uh, give thanks to you that you have your great provision in Christ Jesus and providing the very, your very words for us. And I pray that you'd uh, bless our time, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, and Lord, that we would follow your leading. And we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. All right, so let's get the setting here. As we go into Matthew 18, 
we've been in Matthew, and if we go back two chapters, and for Matthew here, he says, at that time, beginning of 18, verse 1, at that time, at that hour, would be literal, the, the preceding events are close by. So what were some of the preceding events? Well, in Matthew 16, if you remember, that's when Jesus asked the question of the disciples, and he said, who do the people say that I am? And then he followed that up with the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter's response, we see in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Messiah. So you have that. Then you move a little bit, and, and Jesus gets Peter, James, and John, and they go with him, and they're up on the mountaintop, and they encounter something miraculous. The guys see Jesus, and they see Moses, and they see Elijah. Now, again, they, those guys were Old Testament heroes, some might say greatest of all time, in the, um, but they seem, and I don't know how they exactly knew that's Moses and Elijah. Maybe they're, they're hearing name each other. I don't know. But they deter, they're just like, oh, my. And they're impacted by that, and especially those three. Now, I don't know if their attitude was, we got selected. We're getting to see this. I don't know. And, and what were the other disciples thinking? You know, they weren't selected to go to the mountaintop. I don't, I don't know. But we see here, 18.1, they're beginning to think, this is the Messiah. We're with him. Maybe the kingdom's coming, and they're starting to think, hey, I'm, 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 a, I'm connected to Jesus. I'm walking around with him, and if the new kingdom's coming and Jesus is going to be leading, where's my standing in that? So that's our stage, figuring out he's the Messiah, they're, they're God's voice, the mountaintop experience, and now they're going uh, to ask this question. And Mark and Luke, I believe, say... Before this question, there was dispute. So before they went to Jesus, they're kind of talking among themselves. And I don't know if that's around the, the fire pit at night and they're beginning to jockey for position or uh, where they stand in, in relation to each other. But they have the question and they finally go to Jesus. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So I'm wondering what's in their mind, and they've obviously missed because Jesus already said he's come to die. He's already declared that. They're just missing that, and they're connecting on this, this kingdom, and they're probably thinking the organization, the setup, where's my rank in this, where's in the hierarchy of control or influence or power, however they're thinking through that. Uh, they're wrestling with that, and they want to know the answer. And so they, go, they finally, after the dispute, they go, well, you know, let's just go to Jesus. He'll solve this. So they've been, what, they've been arguing, right? When I read this, it reminded me, it's, it's, it's amazing and it's sad sometimes what we see Christians debating and arguing and fighting about, maybe. It's, there's nothing wrong with debate and doing it in love and in helping each other as we're in that journey to grow in Christ. But when we're debating or arguing about things that are not necessary or not of God, then that's, that's sad. Uh, the example that popped in my mind was uh, years back uh, when God worked it out, and um, I was able to, to go start serving in a church that was near seminary. So I could, went to North Carolina. Uh, we moved there, and I was about 45 minutes from seminary, and I began to serve as a youth pastor in this church. It was a Wednesday night. I think I'd been there about two months maybe. 
was about 15 of us, and we were having Bible study, and I had asked a question, and one of my rising seniors, young man, answered the question, and then right after he answered, another rising senior sitting on kind of the other side of the room, he answered, but it was kind of a one-up answer. And then, the, and before I knew it, those two now were kind of going back and forth with each other, and the whole youth group's just kind of watching. And they're basically arguing about who's holier. You know, he's mad. You always make me look bad when I make an answer. And next thing you know, they're standing up, and it's starting to escalate. And here, I've been there six, eight weeks, and I'm about to have a fight on Wednesday night in Bible study. And so I step up, and another uh, senior steps up, and we kind of get those guys, and it's kind of like, yeah, I almost have to go, look at me calm down. <laughs> so, so in that moment, I said, all right, everybody leave the room. I said, you two sit down. And so they, the youth group cleared the room, and I sat down with those two guys, and I said, guys, I've not been here long, but I've heard your testimony. I'm grateful that you love the Lord, but what you're doing right now is, is wrong. And the right thing to do now is you need to reconcile. You need to make things right. I said, those that are just stepped out of the room, they've been looking up to you. They've seen this. Now, you need to make this right, and you do it before you leave this room. And then I got up and walked out, and I, as I closed the door, I thought, maybe I need my resume because if they start brawling, there's nobody to stop them. <laughs> and, of course, the whole youth group's out there at the picnic tables. Their eyes are bite, like, what's going on? You left them alone? <laughs> um, fortunately, about five minutes later, long five minutes, let me tell you, they came out, and they had hugged it out. They had made things right, and I'm telling you, for the re remainder of their senior year, I didn't have that issue with the two of them. So they made it right, but it was a reminder. It, we, and I think all of us, we have to be mindful or when we're with others, other believers. What are we talking about, and are we definitely these things that are uplifting and encouraging each other in our faith? Uh, but it was a reminder. Sometimes we argue about the craziest things, and here are the disciples they're arguing about who is the greatest. You think about the, that, that room of guys. So you have Peter, right? Chief speaker, you know, keys have been handed to him. Um, and he's like, probably jockeying for himself. You have Simon the Zealot. He's like, you know, I already had a thing going against the Romans before following Jesus. I'm in. If the kingdom's coming in, the Romans are going out, how about me? And then you have Judas. He's like, I got the money. Everybody trusts me. I'm the chief treasurer in this new kingdom. And then you have Andrew. He's like, hey, I was the first one called. Then you have John. who's like, well, I'm the beloved. So you have all these guys. So you have their, their uh, back and forth and on. Now they ask Jesus. And I'm sure Jesus is probably just like... <laughs> Verse 2, he says, he called a small child and had him stand among them. So he pulls this little fella in. Uh, some think he might have been two to three years old. We don't know how old, but we bring this little child in, and he had him stand among them. In verse 3, he said, truly I tell you. He said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's Jesus making statement, truly I tell you, unless. So that means there's something for a desired result to happen. Something has to happen before that, right? So unless you become like a little child, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven.
child or the disciples, if we become like a little child, they will enter the kingdom of heaven. So here, Jesus, and we see in the passages, he would use object lessons. I mean, he, he did that whitewashed tombs, you know, trees. He had a lot of things he would use to, to illustrate a point. Here he gets a little child. And so he's using um, this moment, this teaching opportunity with his disciples with a child standing there. He says, unless you become, you turn, okay? That's that moment where there's, he's pointing to conversion. He's a change and how they needed that attitude. Now, they've missed it. You know, he's already talked about his upcoming arrests, that, that he's going to die, but they're, they're, that's just kind of been glossed over, I guess, in their minds. They're thinking the, the power question, the greatest question, who's the goat, so to speak. Um, but he says, it come, become like a little child. And it's the thought process here is like the, like the child piece is like a child that depends on an adult for provision and protection. Because you and I, we all know there are characteristics of children we probably don't want to follow, right? Um, they don't have a lot of experience. They, they're still learning, so they don't know a whole lot. Uh, they can sometimes be selfish and demanding like adults, and if you're not sure, you can work in the church nursery. There will be a new toy, and that will be the cause of division there with the two- and three-year-olds. Um, yet my retail, Toys R Us, I worked there for four Christmases. Leading up to Christmas, you know, some kids, they'll throw a temper tantrum in public, and they don't care. Most of us probably have enough. I'm not going to make myself look like a fool in front of all these people out in public. Kids, nah. And leading up to Christmas, almost every day as we had, got closer to Christmas, I would hear temper tantrums and embarrass parents in the aisles. Um, so there are a lot of things that we wouldn't want to be like as a child, but the one that we would be would be, and he's going to point to it here coming up, being humble. You know, as, as children, they know I need help. And I know for, for me, even growing up, there was this time in a season where I thought my dad knew everything and I knew my dad could take care of us. And when I got older, he didn't know everything. He still knew a lot, um, but he was taking care of us. But that was that, that, that process here. And for us as, as children of God is that he is truly our great provider. Without him, we're helpless. And so we need to totally trust and totally depend on the Lord. And that's what it, he's wanting to point them to, humility of heart. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So here we're talking about the humility. We're not talking about quiet, passive, timid, or maybe even fearful. What we're talking about uh, humility in the sense of others before us. And Jesus totally modeled that, right? He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, watching people, I'm always encouraged when I see this modeled out in, in how they live and how they act and how they, they speak. Um, years back when we were able, I was able we would go to youth camp early in the summer, and then late in the summer, we could go back to camp 
and take our leader students, so usually our juniors and seniors, and yes, I had two, those two that were like brawl, almost brawling. A year later, they were with me helping staff a camp. Um, so we would work behind the scenes at the second camp, just the leader kids. We helped with set up, take down, load in, load out. We helped backstage. If the praise band that was leading worship for camp needed things or the camp pastor, we were there, and we served all week. And I always loved when I watched these these camp pastors on the behind the scenes, are they like what they are on stage? Are they the same in the back? Are they connecting with people who are kind of serving and are almost invisible? And, and the same thing with the worship band. And I saw multiple examples of how they were humble and how they were uh, caring and, and invested in everybody. I saw a few bad examples, but... Uh, most of all, it was just a blessing to me, and I, I thought it was a blessing for our students to see uh, somebody that they were hearing and, you know, kind of the public side, but they were consistent on the private side. So I think it's a good good thought for, for us is are we that kind of people? Are we humble? Are we living life where we're relying on God, we're trusting Him wholly, wholly and completely? like a child would an adult that's providing for them. So that dependence is that characteristic in us. These first four verses right here, they're calling to humility. And when we see this and we get hold of that, we're going to see that pl- how that plays out in practice, both uh, in the next few verses and then in the next couple of weeks as we continue in Matthew. So as it sets the stage, look at verse 5. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. Now he's transitioned now. This this child, this is one that's a follower of Christ. And welcomes them in his name. It's like you welcome me. And so now Jesus is putting himself like uh, himself and his followers, his believers. And that is not just in this moment. Uh, with his first century disciples, but it's for all time. What a blessing and what an opportunity we have too as we meet. And you probably make that connect where you introduce and meet somebody and then suddenly you find out you both have faith in Christ and boom, there's now a real connect because of that uh, being in the family together. What a blessing. Now, verse 6 Kind of, we, we transition a little bit. Um, six, verse six is really going to tie in with these last few verses. So let's look. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now these little ones. So he's talking about believers, and in some cases, some would say new believers, but. Um, this, we're transitioning here to a warning. It said, whoever believes in me, who believes in me and, and their cause to fall away. Jesus is saying there's heavy consequences. So catch this when he says, it would be better. Okay? So what's getting ready to follow out of Jesus' mouth? He's saying this is better than what this is. So catch that. What is it? What is it better? Heavy millstone hung around the neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. That's the better option than what's to follow. Is that 
That's mind-blowing because that's, that's just straight-up physical death, okay? The heavy millstone. Basically, you have like a, a, a stone or slab, and it'd be almost like a, a, a bird bath, and then you would have a stone that could be attached to a pole to a harness, and it would roll around on that stone, and it would crush the grain. If it was small, you could actually connect it to a person who could put on a harness and a pole and then could walk in a circle, and a person can do it. But a heavy millstone was one a person could not, and it would need to be a donkey or an ox because of the weight. So you get that picture. So as Jesus is painting this picture in, his mind as he's, in their minds as he's teaching, as he's talking to them, he says a heavy millstone. And I'm sure all the guys, they've seen it. Maybe they had experience with it, but they know what a heavy millstone and imagine that on you. One, just to be on the ground and have it on you would be, it would be putting you, putting you on your knees and more. Um, but Jesus is basically saying, it, you put that on and you get thrown into the depths of the sea. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of drowning. <laughs> Haven't drowned yet, thankfully. Um, but this is the picture, and when I was reading, they said that first century Israel, for them in their culture, they, they pictured drowning as a very bad way to go. And that's what Jesus uses here, and, and the depths of the sea. So it's like there's no doubt there's, the, the result is going to be drowning. And so as he paints this, that's the better option. Did you catch that? And that's not a good option. We're all in here going, I don't want that. I don't want to go out off the coast and go fishing and then, hey, or try this on and jump overboard. No. No. Now, when I think, think about my own kids and think about it in all the years, if somebody were to, and not when my kids do something they deserve correction or discipline, but if, if they're unjustly, I want to take care of it. When we see this, this is the other. If somebody is leading people astray, there will be judgment because when you're leading God's children away, God sees that, and consequences are severe. Now look, verse 7. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. When we hear woe, it's kind of that, that mixing of doom and pity. You know, it, it, woe is an announcement of divine judgment. Woe. So woe to the world. Now, we all know we live in a fallen, broken, dark, evil world, and offenses are inevitably going to come. Now, offenses, this is, uh, the word would be... Um, Imagery for what they knew at the time would be like a basket, so a fence or a trap. You have a basket like with a stick, and it'd be used, that bit bump, and it would fall, and it would trap wild animals or birds. So this, this is that picture that Jesus is having. Offenses will come, and those who set traps for believers, there's going to be consequence. Um, they're going to pay a heavy price. Now, obviously, uh, if they repent and come into faith, they can be forgiven. But if not, consequences come. It won't be unpunished. Example, I've, I thought of this about om, almost 11 years ago, Juan and I had, I guess we, we'd call it just one of the big moments in our marriage. We were able to go to 
Italy with my brother and his wife and, and spend a week there to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. And had an incredible time. But one moment I remember, and, and we, we were in Rome, Florence, and Venice. We started with Rome, and we had always heard, be careful in Rome. Don't wear nice watches. Make sure you know where your wallet and your passport is. And so I've never been to Europe, so I get off the plane. I'm already, like, paranoid walking through. Uh, but those few days, I always had my wallet in the front. If I had my passport on me, it was in the front, and I was, like, almost I probably look funny. I look straight up tourists, right? But I'm conscious of that. And we had gotten on public transportation and we were going to, I think that day we would see the Vatican. And my brother and I are kind of standing there and Juana and my sister-in-law, are just, they're just talking and oblivious. But my brother and I are just kind of just talking, but we're kind of checking things out. And sure enough, I see these young kids I'm guessing 10 to 12 years old, kind of working their way. And you can tell pretty quick, oh, these guys, these kids are local. And you can see them checking the tourists as they're walking through. They're scouting and they're moving their way through. And I looked at my brother and did the old motion. He's like, he sees them too. So we start watching them and they get up close to Juana and my sister-in-law who are oblivious to that. They're just talking, talking, and there are these teenagers Look at, and then after they look them over, then they make eye contact. My brother and I are just going, <laughs> giving them the look. And they went, hmm. So they just kind of moseyed another way. And sure enough, we first stop, the doors open, pow, they're running out. They grab stuff and off they go and they disappear in the crowd. So that's my picture. Somebody led them to that kind of lifestyle or to tell them this is what you need to do. So if those guys got caught, probably one of the things those kids were going to do is say, well, so-and-so told us how to do this or showed us, and there'll be consequences for that person. Now, they've got to deal with, they did something wrong, they're going to have consequences too, but that who led them, there's going to be consequences. So same thing here, woe to the one who brings offense that causes one of these to stumble. Verse 8, now it gets a little personal. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into the fire. And here's that again. Here's its better option again, okay? Here's the better and here's this. But the better option doesn't sound good. <laughs> but he's saying it would be better. Now, Jesus is obviously exaggerating here. But it's interesting, when I was reading this and when, when, when the text and the Scripture was getting placed and it was getting into English, this is centuries ago, there were actually some religious elites, religious leaders that didn't want it. Now, one, I think they wanted to ha continue to have the power and basically they can't read it. I'll tell you what it says and I'll tell you what to do. But one of their objections was this. Oh, if you do that, these little simple-minded people, they'll start hacking off their hands and feet. And that was kind of one of their reasons. Don't, it doesn't need to be in this language. But the simple-minded person would know Jesus is exaggerating here. But what he's saying is sin is a big deal. And he uses this exaggeration, this picture, to point to it. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, and again, we're, we've shifted now from 
you know, those who bring offense to Christians and, how, and followers of Jesus, how are we to deal with this? Deal with sin. Uh, movie, I don't know, 10, 10, 12, 15 years ago, Fireproof. And uh, the young uh, couple, the young man in the movie, he has an addiction. He has an addiction to porn. And th- it was illustrated, this verse, in one of the scenes where he's sitting there in the computer and the little window pops up and it says, click here to see more. And you can see him just wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. And then next scene is he's outside by his garbage can and he has his computer and he grabs his softball, aluminum softball bat and he goes, wham. And he hits it about four or five times, though the neighbor doesn't know what's going on. And the neighbor's like, (laughs) and so he bam, bam, bam. And then he goes, oh, and he realizes his neighbor's watching him. But the picture is this this was sin, and he dealt with it. He got aggressive with it. And that's what Jesus is saying for us. And for for you and I, when when we enter into sin, when when we sin as believers, our first instinct should be, oh, oh, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. And in that moment, he is faithful, and that fellowship can be restored. If you're in relationship with God, you're a child of God, then fellowship's the thing that's shaky, and that's what needs to be restored when we sin and we confess and ask forgiveness. Verse 9, as Jesus continues to paint this picture for his disciples, And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. And again, that picture. So I remember as a kid just reading about Samson and just thinking that got to be the worst thing to lose your eyes in a a violent way. And this, obviously, Jesus is not saying take your eye out. Again, he's exaggerating. Uh, Even if you did take it out, you know, the issue's in the heart. It's not the eye, but the picture is you need to deal with this. I need to deal with this. So for us as followers, when sin arises, be quick, be quick, be quick. Repent, and if it's something that's leaning you that way, then deal with it. I take care of it. Now, he said, it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into hellfire. Now, another reference to hell, hellfire, eternal fire. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. I, I read one commentator, it was an interesting point. He said, if Jesus never said anything about hell, and the first time we really hear about hell is like an accent on, it might almost blow our mind to think, how could this be real? Jesus didn't even talk about it. But Jesus did. And it's, I mean, it's sobering to think about it when we read it. Jesus wouldn't have wasted the breath and the words if that didn't exist. Hell exists. It will be judgment for those that reject Christ and reject God. But for believers, that's that's not our destiny. But Jesus wanted to deal with sin, and he painted this picture for these guys and be better than to go into eternal fire. Now, outside of Jerusalem... There's a place of the valley there where they would burn trash and they would take it and, and that's just where all the trash went all the time. And they, I don't know, I, don't, I guess they didn't have a trash service. I don't know how they did that, but they got the trash, took it to the valley, they threw it in and it's just always simmering, always burning. Um, they would sometimes throw um, bodies of dead animals and sometimes criminals. 
So it's a, a very sobering spot in Jerusalem. I'm thinking if you want to go see the sunset, that's late in the day, that's not the side of Jerusalem you kind of wanted to go to. Sobering place. And yet that's the picture he's, he, that they have and as he talks and refers to the, the danger of hell. And I think I, I noticed too that in that place where that was burning, that's the place where they said in I think Second Kings and Second Chronicles where they were sacrificing children to Baal and to Molech was in that same spot. So bad history in that spot. So I think for for us that we live humbly for the Lord and that we fully trust Him. And then we not lead others astray. And if you and I, and we're talking, I believe, a habit or a lifestyle of leading others astray, then the consequences are coming. Now, as Christians, we might give bad advice or lead somebody. And if we do, and, and that's brought attention, we need to confess and make things right. But for those that are habitually leading people into sin, there's, there's judgment coming. So uh, we need to be... Uh, mindful that as we are with each other, we're encouraging each other in the faith and, and loving the Lord with our whole heart, being fully dependent on Him, being humble. He is our great provider. Without God, we're nothing and we're totally helpless. Um, years ago, there was a, a wealthy man who bought shares into a mine. Um, this was not a godly man. And one day he decided, I need to go see where my investment is in this place. So he went there and he showed up and the, the, the manager there knew, oh yeah, this is one of the owners. Um, and the guy said, I want to tour the place. I want to tour the mine. And he said, all right. And they went to get somebody. They happened to select an, an older miner who was a believer, a devout follower of Jesus. And he didn't know the owner, but... He, he gets the owner, and he starts giving him a tour, and it's not long before he discerns and figures out this man's not a follower of Jesus at all. I mean, he's profanity spewing. Uh, just He just knows. And they get into the mine shaft, the elevator, and they begin to go down. They continue to go down. They continue to go down, and it gets hotter and more humid. The miner's used to it, but this guy's not. And so after a while and after some profane talking in jokes, he, he looks at the miner and he says, how much closer to hell? And the miner said, I don't know, but if one of those chains breaks, you'll be there shortly. <laughs> now, even though that in that moment, it was like a wall hit that man and he realized how precarious, not just physically trusting in this chain, but how he was spiritually, how precarious his life was. So as I, as I share and I think about us, if, if you're on that journey of, and you haven't made that decision, this could be your day. And I would encourage you, repent from your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ. So you tell, tell God, I trust that Jesus lived, died, was without sin, and three days later he rose from the grave. And put your faith and trust in him and turn and depend on him like a humble, humbly and depend on him like a child would an adult that cares for them. And if you've already made that decision for Christ, then this is probably the time we just need to weigh our lives and search our thoughts. And if God brings to mind things that we need to repent of, then let's do it.
which leads us right into when we do the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. When we do this, we're remembering what Jesus did. He was without sin. He didn't, in his whole life here on earth, he stepped out of heaven, became man, and he didn't sin in word, thought, or action. And then he gave his life. He paid the price that you and I could not pay. Again, we'd be totally guilty, drowned in the depths of the sea. But because of Christ, we can be forgiven and be rescued. So as a believer, rest in that, but search your heart. And if God brings to mind, then, and then confess that, and then um, come forward and, and remember, because this, this is for believers. And if you're still wrestling with something, then I, I encourage you, you don't have, there's no thing that says you must do it today. If you're stirring, God's stirring you and you're dealing with it, Make sure you do before you do this. So if, if you have more questions, I, myself and others, I know we'd love to talk to you about Jesus and how faithful he is. And he rescued me in 1977. He's always been faithful. Um, I've had my ups and downs, but he's been faithful, and I'm so grateful for his forgiveness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we... Uh, Pause now to, to meditate on these, these words that Jesus said. Lord, if there's any sin, may you bring it to mind, and Lord, may we be transparent, may we confess. And Father, if I pray, any in this room, if this is their day of new, new birth, this is the day where they turn unless you turn and become like a child. Maybe this is the day someone will turn, they'll change, they'll come, repent and come to faith. I pray this is that day, their spiritual birthday, today. Lord God, stir us that we would be salt and light in our community. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, may we heed your prompting in our hearts as your Holy Spirit stirs us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.